Welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. I want to make sure that you're all aware of the great exhibitions that are on view throughout the building. Uh, the Civil War is told through, the story is told through textiles on our first floor, um, including some unusual pieces like the noose that broke John Brown's neck. On the second floor, more cheerful things, Audubon's birds, and a wonderful exhibition of photographs taken by Bill Cunningham in the 1970s. Uh, I, um, I know you'll enjoy them, and I hope you'll return during regular museum hours to, uh, to visit these great shows. Um, I also hope that uh, you're aware by now of our wonderful Bernard and Irene Schwartz film series, classic film series, uh, which we show most Friday evenings in this auditorium. Um, if you are not, there are flyers available this evening on your way out. Tonight's program, Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan Gave Birth to Modern America, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great generosity, which has enabled us to... which has enabled us to bring so many fine speakers like this evening's speaker to this auditorium. I also want to recognize uh, two uh, very special people uh, with us this evening. Our board chair, Pam Schaffler, who does invaluable work and very hard work on our behalf. Thank you so much, Pam, for everything that you do. And um, our great trustee, Carl Mangus. Thank you, Carl. This evening's program will uh, last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll ask you to line up behind standing mics to my left and to my right in the aisles. We ask you to do that so that the speaker on the stage can hear your question, as can the other members of the audience. We are so very pleased to welcome Donald L. Miller to the New York Historical Society. Dr. Miller is the John Henry McCracken Professor of History at Lafayette. He's also the associate producer, historical consultant, and co-author of two Tom Hanks-produced documentaries, He Has Seen War and Beyond All Boundaries. Previously, he hosted the award-winning PBS series, A Biography of America. Dr. Miller has also written, co-produced, and served as historical consultant on over three dozen film documentaries for which he's received a Peabody Award and been nominated for six Emmy Awards. Dr. Miller is the award-winning author of nine books, several of which were made into television documentaries that aired on PBS, National Geographic, and the History Channel. Recently, HBO purchased the rights to his book, Masters of Air, America's Bomber Boys, Who Fought the Air War Against Nazi Germany. And Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg have begun work on a 10-hour dramatic series based on the book. His most recent book is Supreme City, How Jazz Age Manhattan Gave Birth to Modern America. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our speaker to the stage. Thank you, Louise, and it's a real honor to be here. Um, the library and I are old friends, and um, I did a lot of work here, and um, 
I think New York and Chicago are the only cities that have true historical societies and combination of historical societies and museums that directly address the city's, the city's history. So it's a, um, it's a real honor to be here. This is an experiment tonight for me. I've never given a PowerPoint presentation, but luckily in the audience is my uh, guru from Simon & Schuster, Stephen Bedford. So if I scream, Stephen's going to come up and take over. And, uh, but in any event, um, the book that I, that I wrote, uh, this one, is, uh, is not the book that I set out to write. I originally set out to write a book um, about all of New York, all, all five boroughs, and I was going to do the interwar years between 1919 and 1941. But I uh, did a lot of research on that, but got into the story, and I found a larger story, I think a, uh, a story that really drew, drew me within that, uh, within that you know, entire epic <laughs> that I hoped to write. And this was a story about the transformation of Midtown Manhattan uh, from what had been, before 1920, a commercial backwater. I mean, the Vanderbilts lived there, the park was there, but it was a commercial backwater. And it was transformed in the 20s into the communication center of the country and the entertainment center of the country and the epicenter, really, of New York City. And on 42nd Street, you had financial firms that virtually rivaled Wall Street in power and influence. So I thought this was a fantastic story to tell. Now, for... 300 years, Lower Manhattan, of course, had dominated New York City. Then in the 20s, there's this, this tremendous, spectacular eruption. And it's the creation, really, of one of the great city-building efforts in world history. Now, it sounds like hyperbole, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll see that it was that. This is the Fred French building on, on, on Fifth Avenue. And the transformation really begins, and we'll come back to this, with the opening of Grand Central Terminal, the new Grand Central Terminal in 1913. And it reaches its peak, its apogee, in 1927. And that was the year that David Sarnoff went national with a network called NBC. It's the year that the Roxy Theater opens. It's the year that the Ziegfeld Theater opens. And in that year, real estate prince Fred French builds this Art Deco skyscraper on Fifth Avenue, and it's the first terrifically tall building north of 42nd Street. Before this, the Times Tower had been the tallest building on that part of Manhattan. And uh, I focus on the year 1927. Now, this is a year when Charles Lindbergh, of course, made his solo flight from New York to Paris and then returned, as you see here, to a triumphant uh, city, 19, uh, June 1927. Four million people showed up for the Lindbergh thing. And in that year, as F. Scott Fitzgerald points out in the crack up, I quote him, the tempo of the city, he said, changed sharply. The parties were bigger, the buildings were higher, the morals were looser, the liquor was cheaper. The jazz age now raced along under its own power, served by great filling stations full of money. Wish I had written that. <laughs> and New York, of course, then was in the, in the vanguard of, um, and this is, I think, this is the 21 Club, uh, before it was the 21 Club, the Punchin Club, and picture taken here in 1927, captures the spirit that uh, Fitzgerald was talking about. And this, of course, is, is Midtown in 1930, when this great skyscraper eruption uh, was virtually completed, and the Depression set in and stopped it. And New York, in this phase, from about 1925 to 1930, is in the vanguard of cultural, social, technological transformations that would make the 20th century the American century. 
Uh, you have the rise of commercial radio, talking movies in 1927. You have the invention of television, primitive forms of television. The beginnings with the daily news of tabloid journalism, the spread through radio and recordings of a hot new urban music called jazz with Duke Ellington. You have the emergence with Babe Ruth, Jack Dempsey, of mass spectator sports. It's, it's just a fantastic era. And this book is, is, a, is the story of that entire urban revolution. And I tell it through the lives of about three dozen characters. So it's kind of a biography of a city, and inside that biography there are other mini-biographies that carry you along, and hopefully I connect everything. Dante says that hell is a place where nothing connects, and I hope this is in hell. So, uh, and most of these characters are blazingly ambitious strivers from outside New York, from um, east of the Hudson and west of the Danube. And... Uh, I didn't realize that until, idiotically, until I was halfway through the book. And I picked up E.B. White's small classic, Here's New York. And here's what he says. It's the person who was born elsewhere and came to New York in quest of something that accounts for New York's high-strung disposition, its poetical deportment, its dedication to the arts, and its incomparable achievements. But I think it's, my book owes more to Tocqueville of Democracy in America than it does D.E.B. White, to Tocqueville who wrote that every American is eaten up with a desire to rise. Uh, my characters, unlike a lot of people who come into New York today, arrived in the city to plant their flag and refashion the city's commerce. The city changes them, and they in turn change the city. This is David Sarnoff. Um, he comes from a Belarusian village that's so backward it was medieval. And he becomes the father of modern communications, radio and television, a true media tycoon. Um, this is Tex Rickard and Jack Dempsey. Rickard's a saloon keeper from the Canadian Klondike. He builds the new Madison Square Garden and teaches boxers and boxing promoters especially a lasting lesson. To be successful, he said, a big fight has to be built around a big story. And he did. He had five uh, championship fights, most of them featuring Dempsey in the 1920s, and all were million-dollar gates. It's never been equaled. Now, his meal ticket here is Jack Dempsey, and he's a hard hitter from the Colorado minefields, and he turns boxing into a million-dollar industry. And he and Rickard draw, interestingly, the Ermine and Pearl crowd, including Ann Morgan, daughter of the capitalist corsair J.P. Morgan. Um, you have Babe Ruth, uh, a truant from the Baltimore docks who transforms his sport as fundamentally as Dempsey transforms his. Uh, he transforms baseball from small ball to long ball. And like Dempsey, he's, he's a long hitter. He's a slugger. And you have one-time socialist, if you can believe it, Joseph Patterson from Chicago's Gold Coast from the Medill family. And he gives New Yorkers a new way of getting their news, their sports, and their gossip when he founds the Daily News in 1919. By 1925, it's the largest selling newspaper in the world. And uh, so what I try to do in this book is I try to reimagine the city as it was back then, uh, to describe these characters um, as they lived their lives, unsure of what lay ahead, unsure of posterity's judgment. You know, you hear constantly that history gives you hindsight. But as I always tell my students, hindsight can distort because we know what happened. And if we start writing history knowing exactly what happens, 
we don't get the sense of what happens, how these characters made these decisions and all the options that were in front of them, not knowing what was ahead. And, and they don't become the risk takers and gamblers sometimes that they really were. Uh, my friend David McCullough always reminds me, he says the most in inaccurate phrase in the English language is the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, the future can never be foreseen, of course. Now, in New York, it seemed in 27, 1927, when this guy, Jimmy Walker, elected in 1926, and he would be reelected, of course, and then brought down, it seemed unimaginable that, for one thing, the greatest urban boom in modern history would soon collapse. Nobody knew that, and it would collapse with shocking suddenness, and that this stylish, high-living guy, Jimmy Walker, the city's immensely popular mayor, would be brought low by charges of corruption and forced to resign. Uh, so, great parts of my book are dedicated to Walker, to Tammany Hall politics, to prohibition and nightlife, to organized crime, to baseball and boxing. But tonight, I'm not going to do that. Tonight, what I'd like to focus on is what I call the book's central drama. And this is the rise, literally the rise, of Midtown Manhattan. Uh, a century ago, audacious strivers built the first American modern American downtown, and I think they did it right. Um, it all begins with this, with a tremendous construction project. The story begins with Grand Central's terminal. Uh, this is 1910 when they're still digging and, and trying to bury the tracks. Now the project is set in motion by one of the worst train disasters in New York history. This is a pretty familiar story. A commuter train comes barreling through one of the uh, terminal's uh, smoke-filled tunnels, and it fails to spot a couple of warning lights, and it slams into the rear of another train waiting to enter the train yard. And the carnage was so terrible that the New York Central was forced by the state legislature to electrify its locomotives. Now, William Wilgus, seen here, young guy, um, the railroad's chief engineer, he electrifies the trains, he buries the tracks, you've seen that construction site, but he goes a step further. He convinces his superiors, the railroad executives, to build a new state-of-the-art terminal. And this state-of-the-art terminal is a great, I call it a great people-moving machine. It's a stairless building, and you can move fast on there. The luggage is moved fast through there. The trains are moved fast through there. And there's underground passageways, as you can see, that lead to the subway system, and also they were shop-line passageways that lead to the commercial buildings around the station. Literally, it's, a, it's an underground city within the city. And... This is the station, of course, when it, was, when, it was nearing, when it was just completed with the roadway surrounding it that rolls down onto Park Avenue. And um, this is what it looked like before Wilgus got to work on it. Uh, for half a century, you had this gigantic rail yard fanning out from the station all the way up from 42nd to 56th Street. It obliterated all, all cross streets, forced pedestrians to walk on those iron catwalks, braving swirling smoke and ash. I mean, it was a nightmare. And that's, that's the east side. That's Park Avenue. Uh, so on the roof of Wilgus's smokeless tunnels, he says, why don't we build a city and call it Terminal City? And the first thing they build is Park Avenue. And, uh, and there it is. And that's only 10 years after that slide I just showed, OK? And there it is, uh, Zelda Fitzgerald wrote a wonderful piece about it. She called it an avenue straight as a sunbeam. And uh, it's flanked, of course, by tall apartment buildings of restrained design, 
The railroad controlled that. They're the, worst, they're the world's first skyscrapers built for permanent living. Okay? And what the New York Central does is it, it does this by selling something that's brand new that's old today. It sold its air rights. That's a new thing in 1913. It sold it to developers. And Wilgus says very poetically, with revenue plucked from the air, I can create a veritable city, terminal city within a city. And so it happened. Tragically, Wilgus is fired by the railroad. It's a long story before this is completed, so he doesn't see the project through. Now, further up the avenue on 57th, Emory Roth, and boy, we're in Emory Roth territory right here around the museum. A Hungarian-born developer throws up this building called the Ritz Tower. It's still there. And it's a precursor of the sensationally tall towers that are now being built or planned on the avenue. I don't like it. I call it Hong Kong on the Hudson. But uh, I think the captains of commerce who had the top stories here, like uh, William Randolph Hearst, lived higher, actually, than anyone had ever lived before. Cloud dwellers, people called them. Now, a number of the residents of this new Park Avenue were migrants from the old Fifth Avenue. And this is Fifth Avenue on Easter Sunday, 1913. Now, in the 20s, descendants of Commodore Vanderbilt, most of whom were dissolute um, and broke, uh, a lot of the widows who had a tough time keeping up their mansions, and the whole avenue is lined with mansions like this, a block long, okay? This is the largest urban chateau or home in the world uh, by Cornelius Vanderbilt II. And it was very hard for the widows to keep these places up, so they simply move over to Park Avenue to penthouses there. And they sell these places to a new breed of real estate agents, mostly Jews, from the Lower East Side who had moved into the Garment Center and started to move up the economic ladder. And the Vanderbilt mansions are torn down with tremendous suddenness. Literally the week after they were sold, most of them were torn down. And merchandising impresarios moved in here and transformed Fifth from 42nd all the way to the park into the most exclusive shopping area in the country and maybe the world. Um, Saks Fifth Avenue moved from Herald Square to Fifth and expanded tremendously changed its name, of course, to Saks Fifth Avenue. And the entire stretch of the avenue, this is it in the 1920s, was made over completely in less than five years. That's, that's pretty astonishing. Um, this, is the large, this is the Alice and Cornelius Vanderbilt II mansion. And on that site, uh, Edwin Goodman built Bergdorf Goodman's. Um, and um, this is at 5th and 57th. And uh, Goodman's one of my many characters, most of whom are kind of unknown to a lot of New Yorkers, but they're tremendously important in, in the shaping of this city. Uh, Goodman, uh, like one of E.B. White's characters that he mentions, is a, he's an outsider. He's a former garment worker, a tailor from Rochester, New York. And years before he had bought out, years before he built this building, he had bought out his partner Bergdorf, moved up the avenue right next to St. Pat's, and then made his biggest move right up to the park on 57th. The whole trade said, can't do it. You can't have tailoring that close to, you know, the exclusive places like the Astor Homes up on, you know, you know on Central Park East. But he did it. It was a risk. And he leases that Vanderbilt site. And he builds Bergdorf Goodman's. Now, his specialty was treating rich women like royalty. He even matched some spoiled women's outfits to the wardrobes of their pet dogs. Uh, he and his wife lived in a penthouse on the top floor of the store. And by law in New York, you can't do that. Uh, it's an industrial building. But Jimmy Walker, who was a friend of Goodman's, said, why don't you list yourself with the least as custodians? 
So here you have the two richest janitors in the world uh, in this place. And, uh, and then along this whole regal stretch, it really is a kind of regal stretch of Fifth Avenue, you have um, the beauty business growing up. And that's founded by cosmetics queens, um, Helena Rubinstein here, and Elizabeth Arden there. Now Arden's a Canadian, daughter of a Canadian farmer. And Rubinstein's a rebellious daughter of a Polish kerosene dealer. And they're venomous rivals. They never spoke to one another in 50 years. Uh, Rubinstein called Arden the other one. Uh, and before they arrived in New York, only actresses and fast-living working women uh, wore makeup. Uh, but by the mid-20s, powder and paint, as they called it, had become badges of independence for a lot of women. And the beauty business, believe it or not, becomes one of the 10th largest businesses in the United States. Arden and Rubenstein pamper the elite with facials and massages at their Fifth Avenue salon. But they really make their millions by building a national market for cosmetics. And Arden summed it up. He says, she said, every woman has a right to be beautiful. And that was a slogan they went by. Now, while Fifth Avenue is being transformed, there's another transformation, and I don't have some slides on this, occurring over on what's called Sutton Place, which is a backward area of old brownstones, decaying brownstones. And Ann Harriman Vanderbilt, an inordinately rich woman, uh, she's the lover of Ann Morgan. And they both move over to Sutton Place, and they transform that decaying riverfront district near the Queensboro Bridge into a colony of rich, free-thinking women. And this gentrification movement seeps south to Beekman Place, and then further south to a rocky bluff that not many people go to in New York on the east end of 42nd Street. There, Fred French, you've seen his building. He's the son of a hard-drinking cigar salesman. He built Tudor City. It's still there, a park-like skyscraper community for Manhattan workers. Uh, it had its own golf course. It's only a two-minute walk from, from Grand Central Station. And I think it's an overlooked, very overlooked example of affordable in-town living. You get a good idea here. This is Walter Chrysler. Uh, next to the terminal, uh, Chrysler, who's a former railroad mechanic from the Kansas Plains, he builds this silver-capped symbol, really, of the auto age that he himself helped to create. In 1928, uh, four years after introducing that car that we just saw called the Chrysler 6, um, fast, stylish, and all that for the 1920s, he begins supervising the construction of this, what was to be, he announced publicly, the tallest building in the world. And the announcement, of course, sets off a highly publicized sky race because the builders of a tower down on lower Manhattan at 40 Wall Street, are going to, they're also out to build the tallest building in the world. Now, as both buildings near completion, all the newspapers in New York call it the downtown challenger. He, you know, Ordenstein won the contest, 40 Wall won the constant. But what Chrysler does is he orders the construction in secret inside the tower of an 185-foot thing called a vertex, a steel needle. And it's inside the uncompleted tower. And no one knows what was going on at that time up there. And when it was raised, this vertex, on an October morning in 1929, the 77-story tall Chrysler building, 1,046 feet high, is the tallest structure ever built, taller than the Eiffel Tower. But of course, only for 11 months when it's superseded by the Empire State Building. The architect, William Van Allen, uh, is almost unknown today. 
And I came across this wonderful quote by British designer Cecil Bettan. He says, it's perhaps inconsistent that New Yorkers who have such a love for celebrities do not know the names of their most brilliant architects. This is the Silver Spire, hot jazz, I think, in stone and steel. And it's a near perfect representation, I think, of mid-Manhattan's style, its speed, and its romantic excess. Uh, a lot of people didn't like it. I wrote a biography of Lewis Mumford a while ago. He hated the building. I couldn't see why. But Van Allen used lustrous, a lustrous new material called Narasta steel from the Krupp Steelworks in Germany. He used it for all the trim, including the gargoyles there. Margaret Burke White, uh, you know, the photographer, photographed, docu documented the whole, the, the building of the building, if you will, and had a, uh, a suite, an office suite there. She tried to live in the building like Goodman did, and they wouldn't let her. Okay, and, um, but uh, she kept two alligators out there in one of the lofts and, uh, <laughs> from a friend from Florida. I think this is New York's commanding testimony um, to the auto age, but it's something else. Inside, go over to the Chrysler Building. Edward Trumbull has this magnificent ceiling. And, you know, you come from the ceiling at Grand Central Terminal, and everybody knows that, but go over and see the Chrysler Terminal. It's, it's filled with images of the construction workers, and Chrysler loved these guys who actually put up the building. And I think it's New York's commanding artistic testimony to the workers who built its Art Deco skyscrapers. Now, right across the street, um, the... Um, uh, wow, I knew where the pointer was. Okay, there's the Chrysler, okay, and... Uh, and then there's a building right across the street, the, the, the Channon building. Um, and we have in the audience tonight, and I'll introduce her later, the granddaughter of Erwin Channon, okay? Uh, who loaned me a photograph of her, of her grandfather. Now, in 1919, Erwin Channon, another one of these rocket-like success stories, he's the son of a Bensonhurst, Bensonhurst immigrants from Ukraine. And in that year, he's a veteran of World War II, one year out of the war, he's broke, he's jobless. Ten years later, he's a multimillionaire builder, a master of the Manhattan skyline, and it's being touted with Fred French as one of the so-called hundred wonder men of New York City. Go into this Art Deco lobby. Uh, it's dedicated to the theme, wonderfully, City of Opportunity, and he uses his own life as illustrative example of that. And he saw the city, Shannon did, as theater. He built five Broadway theaters, including the Majestic. And he had 200 floodlights, we don't have a picture of this, installed in one of the building's setbacks, way up high. And uh, they brilliantly illuminated the tower, and from afar, people said it looked like an island floating in the sky. And uh, this is Channon at his apogee, you know, terrific guy. And there's the new 42nd Street, 1930. Hadn't been a single skyscraper there in 1920. This was all done. There you can see at the bottom what it looked like before, right there. And there's it, the profile of it. So by 30, 42nd Street, by 1930, with tremendous suddenness, has become the commercial, hotel, transportation hub of the city. And in Commodore Vanderbilt's day, back in the 60s, 1860, it was a city of small factories, rail yards, stockyards. By 1930, the only thing they're building here is tremendous um, quantities of tension. <laughs> Um, there are no skyscrapers in 1919, north of Times Square. By 1930, half of New York skyscrapers are in this district, including this building here, which is a daily news building built by Joseph Patterson. Okay. 30 skyscrapers are built in 1927 alone. That's a record that's never been beaten. Now, 
these buildings, um, these towers, um, okay, first screw up, uh, are not pure products of unrestrained capitalism. This isn't laissez-faire capitalism. Build what you want to build, how you want to build it. They're built to the specifications of the 1916 zoning laws, which are designed to bring sunlight and air onto the city streets and prevent overcrowding. And working within these restraints, architects like this, Ray Hood, who built the Daily News building, uh, built a style that I think is absolutely, it hasn't been called anything yet, but I think it's absolutely distinctly New York. Uh, and it's defined by these really sharp setbacks. Do you see them most prominently in the French building like this? Almost like ancient Assyrian ziggurats. People called it wedding cake architecture. And it's interesting, Eli Jacques Kahn called it a style born of necessity. In other words, we had to do it this way. We had these restraints, but we, instead of trying to rebel against them and fight them, we worked within them and we built a whole new architecture, a uniquely New York kind of architecture. Now, um, who is Fred French? Um, in a Don DeLillo novel called Underworld, uh, this mother and this daughter enter the lobby. My wife and I were just there in the lobby you know, a couple of minutes ago. They enter the lobby, this gleaming lobby, this beautiful lobby of the French building, and they wonder who on earth, these are DeLillo's words, is Fred French. Well, he's a real estate visionary and salesman extraordinaire. I call him a babbit with brains. And uh, what he sold, and he sold it with a fervor of a revivalist preacher, was stock. Stock in his immensely profitable real estate companies. Three years before this, before Bruce Barton wrote a book called The Man Nobody Knows, I use this in class, it's a, it's a biography, if you can believe it or not, a best-selling one about Jesus Christ as the founder of modern business. Fred was using, Fred French is using Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to sell stock. He's telling his salesman every day in the auditorium of his building, knock and it shall be open to you. And then he adds a little Philip, knock down the door if necessary. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is the Fred French that, starts, that started out peddling real estate out of a coal cellar in the Bronx where he lived with his mother in 1919. By 27, 1927, he's worth 10 million bucks. His skyscraper like Shannon is architecture as autobiography. And... Um, the central symbol, you have to pull away from, from it for a little bit, if you see it down on Fifth Avenue, is the facade, it's on the facade, it's a, that slender slab there, and uh, right up here, and the symbol is the rising sun, and it's perfect, because it symbolizes renewal, and French saw that as the commanding theme of his life, and the guy never stopped believing in himself. Uh, the Great Depression ruins him, though, and he dies in 1936 at age 53 of a heart attack in his sleep, and his net worth is less than $10,000. Um, this is um, the Radiator Building. Now, it's one of my favorite skyscrapers, but it's hardly a skyscraper. 21 stories tall, it's a black brick building, and down on West 40th, right across from the public library. It's Ray Hood's first New York skyscraper. I like it a lot better than the Daily News building. George O'Keefe, by the way, captured this thing on canvas, lit up at night. And um, that's not George O'Keefe, it's a photograph. But I like it because it's, it's built to human scale. Uh, and it's open to the sun, it's open to the air, and it's right across a now beautiful park, Bryant Park, and a neoclassical library, the public library. So nice, restrained kind of skyscraper. Now. 
Skyscraper construction is not only an industry, it becomes like an art form in New York, like the building of a medieval cathedral. I mean, you build a medieval cathedral in the center of town, like Chartres. Uh, these midtown skyscrapers are the same thing. They're thrilling public spectacles. They're technological shows that take place out in the open, throwing up especially the iron frame in a building. And um, it's, uh, some spectators arrive at the site with binoculars to watch these, what look like ant-like men, up on these pencil-thin, what seems to be pencil-thin girders. And they're called Sky Boys, and they're all over the, pr all over the press, all over newspapers. There's a film at the Paramount build, you know, Building and Theater called Skyscraper, celebrating these guys. So all of Midtown is this vast construction site, and this is like, like mid-Manhattan street theater. And the most fascinating spectacle, I think, is a loft. And uh, at heights where the birds don't fly. And here the men work without safety hats, they work without handholds, they work without hard hats. And the rivet gangs were the main act. And uh, there was four guys in a rivet gang, a, a heater, a catcher, a bucker-up, and a gunman. This is the catcher. And using long tongs, the heater it has a, like a little barbecue stove. He picks one of these cherry red rivets and he flings it 70 feet off to the next story. And you remember, you're up. 60 stories doing this. Out of his portable oven, he flings it up there, and it's snared by this guy in a so-called glove, which is nothing more than a beat-up metal can. If this guy misses the blazing rivet, it either hits him and scars him, or it falls below a, a, a malevolent missile that can really drive a steaming hole into a person's skull. So the catcher then um, places the rivet in two holes overlapping steel, and the bucker up then holds the rivet in place, you can see him on the right there, while the gunman presses a pneumatic hammer, and his whole body shakes while he does it. And um, until that whole rivet is smashed into a mushroom-like cap flush against the steel. The entire operation takes about less than a minute, maybe about 50 seconds. And this is deadly dangerous work. On average, they have one violent death for every 33 hours on the job and falls account for most of the fatalities. One iron worker told me, we don't die, we're killed. And uh, Mohawk Indians, actually, from a reservation uh, near Montreal, did a lot of the high iron construction. They embraced the danger. Don't forget, they come from, it enhanced their self-esteem. They come from a culture, the Mohawk culture, where the women make the main decisions. And Mohawk wives today are still forbidden to touch their husband's tools, symbols of sexual potency, especially this bolt pin that fits into the belt directly over the man's crotch. Um, and there's a legend about these guys, these Mohawks, that they went about their work with, without a quiver of fear and that their fearlessness came naturally. It was like it was in the genetic code. Uh, but it wasn't, of course. It was a learned trait. I've talked to some of these guys. It came from years of experience. And, you know, the work gave these guys a sense of ownership, the same kind of sense of ownership that Shannon had about his building. A Mohawk iron worker told an interview, he said, we're part of this town of man-made mountains. We're mountain builders. Now, most of these guys, most of these Mohawks lived in Gowanus, right near a poison canal. And uh, they, they went by subway into the city, and they returned regularly to their Montreal reservation. A number of other iron workers lived over in Hell's Kitchen, and they had got their start on sailing ships. And here in Hell's Kitchen, you have a place, of course, of dispiriting, absolutely dispiriting poverty. It's unlike the east side. There's poverty in the east side, but there's ambition there, and there's, there seems to be none of it on Kell's Kitchen. And even the social workers talk about it. But this is home to the 
era's uh, New York's certainly most powerful criminal syndicate. It was a bootlegging operation headed by this guy here, Big Bill Dwyer. And it's one of the largest bootlegging operations in the world. I didn't even know it existed when I started the book. And, but working with Ken Combe at the archives, I found amazing stuff on it. Dwyer heads it. He's a former Chelsea longshoreman. Frank Costello, the so-called prime minister of the underworld and a mafia chief later. He's an immigrant from Calabria. He's one of the partners. And the third partner is a guy named Oni Madden. And he's from an Irishman from the British Midlands. Now, prohibition gives these small-time hoods an opportunity to form million-dollar industries. And one of the biggest was in New York. These guys had their own fleet of ocean-going vessels. They even had an airplane to watch the Coast Guard, Scout Coast Guard movements. They had an arsenal of lawyers, an arsenal of Tommy guns, and they had the active cooperation of the New York cops. When they brought their booze into the city, the cops were right on the running boards, taking it right where it had to go. The Coast Guard brought their booze in for them, actually brought it in, uh, and were photographed and convicted. Um, but without political protection from Tammany Hall, particularly from a guy named Jimmy Hines, who went up the river to Sing Sing in 1936, Madden couldn't have operated his operations. He had a huge brewery uh, called the Phoenix Brewery down in Hell's Kitchen on 23rd Street, fortress-like thing, the whole block. You could smell the barley and the oats and everything. And uh, nobody touches him. Secret Service, uh, federal agents come in, in, in you know, they're going to try to you know, raid the place, scout it out. And Madden, who'd been a gang leader of a gang called the Goofers, it's spelled Gophers, in Hell's Kitchen, simply hired his former cop busters, as he called them, to take care of these guys. And the New York City police would arrest them for vagrancy. They'd arrest the federal agents for vagrancy. So, and occasionally they'd raid the Madden brewery. But what Madden would do when he, he was usually forewarned, He'd send an entire batch of what he called Madden's Number One, this creamy ale, right into the New York sewer system through secret pipes. So they never got him. And he winds up in, in Little Rock. And he has an operation in Little Rock, and the nurse at the operating table was Bill Clinton's mother. <laughs> yeah, Clinton talks about that in his autobiography. Yeah, she said he had so many bullets in him that the room lit up. And uh, when they put the light on it, you know, I don't know if that happened, but Bill's not known for his veracity. Uh, the, uh, um, Madden, of course, I'm not going to go into too much of this, but Madden ran uh, big sections of Midtown. Historians fight this idea that criminals, you don't do criminals, they don't write letters, they don't write biographies, you don't have manuscripts, so you can't do them, but you can. Go down in the municipal archives, all the stuff's there. He ran a couple of clubs with legendary... Uh, nightclub hostess Texas Guinan, who ran a couple of clubs like this, one of Jimmy Walker's favorites. And Ed Sullivan, uh, a reporter in New York at the time, said that knowing Madden was like knowing the mayor. Uh, he patrolled downtown in his long Duesenberg convertible with his old buddy from the Hell's Kitchen, George Raft, who played Madden in Hollywood movies in the 30s. That's not Raft, it's Madden. Okay. Now, the city that they lived in had the density and diversity that you need to make cities cook, to really make cities go. But if density, which is great, devolves into congestion, it can be paralyzing. It can mar movement, it can break up commerce. So New York had to start moving people in the 20s swiftly, they had to move people swiftly, they had to move goods swiftly. And they do this with a couple of projects. One of them's the Holland Tunnel. And that was a chief engineer, Clifford Holland. Uh, he died during the construction of the tunnel. This has begun in 1919, and it's completed in 1927, in November. Two months 
after ground was broken on the GW Bridge. New York really built big and well then. And it was the first vehicular tunnel under the Hudson River. And it was, for a time, the longest vehicular tunnel in the world. It's still longer than the Lincoln Tunnel. The biggest challenge, though, was not digging it. Um, you know, we knew how to, the New York engineers knew how to dig rail tunnels. And, you know, and so, but it, it, the problem was ventilating it, cleansing it of the poisonous exit, you know, exhaust fans from uh, cars and trucks. So Holland does this by creating, these things, you can still see them, these four immense uh, wind factories, he called them, two at each end of the tunnel. They capture the wind, and then there's 80 fans in there, and the fans send the wind, shooting through tunnels and vents, it's, and the air comes out at curbside. Then the exhaust fans pull the, the soil there, the foul air, they suck it right out of the ceiling. So the air inside the tunnel is changed every 90 seconds. Nobody had ever done that before. It's a groundbreaking ventilation system. It's still in use. Uh, the first time they, they dug one of these tunnels in Pittsburgh, three people died of carbon monoxide poisoning in their cars. Now, and that's the Holland Tunnel on Tunnel Day when they opened it. They allowed 70,000 people to walk through. People from Jersey City came in and met people from New York, and they shook over that little green sign in there that says, New York, New Jersey, hey, how you doing, you know? And they let the cars in. Okay. Now, this is the other project of 27. This is Othmar Amman, the greatest bridge builder in world history. He designs the GW Bridge. He designs five other New York bridges, including the Veranzano, which, by the way, is the last bridge built in New York City. And the GW's most daring, I think, engineering feat is this super thin, super slender deck. It's probably its most aesthetic, outstanding aesthetic feature is that bracing. Now, Amman wanted to cover the bracing in granite, but the Port Authority, they're going into the Depression, didn't have the money to do it. But over time, he kind of gets to love his accidental artwork. And um, all the towers of his later bridges are exposed steel. Corbusier called this the most beautiful bridge in the world. And what the bridge does is increase the city's dependence on automobiles, and so they have to clear out downtown streets. This is Hell's Kitchen. And before in Hell's, this is 10th and 11th Avenues, this is 11th Avenue, were known collectively as Death Avenue. Because those trains, those locomotives, ran right down the center of the street and they killed 500 kids in 60 years. So you had this guy, a kid, or a young man on a, um, and Puzo describes this in uh, The Fortunate Pilgrim, his autobiographical novel, Fell's Kitchen. He has a lantern or a flag, and he leads the locomotives down there. Well, they dig up the tracks. It's a big project for Jimmy Walker, and they build this, the West Side Improvement. You can walk it today. It's called the High Line. Okay? And... Um, a lot of this auto-dependency that we're talking about um, is exacerbated because the tunnel brings tremendous numbers of trucks into buildings like this, the Left Court building on 6th Avenue and 7th Avenue into the Fashion Center. So at this time, New York is becoming... It, it's, it, it, it's always been a subway city. It's always been a port city. But now it's becoming as well an auto city. Not completely. Robert Moses would have wanted it to go that way, but not completely. And industries at the same time, like the garment industry, have, are moving uptown in the 20s because they have to be close to the suppliers of buttons and needles and cutting tools they need. The ready-made garments can be made out in Scranton, Pennsylvania, or over in Hoboken. But the highly stylized garments had to be made on Fashion, on fashion Avenue, so the garment industry stays in town. And so did the publishing industry, for about the same reason. Um, 
you got to be in your agents, you got to be in your ad agencies, you got to be in your magazines, you got to be in your radio stations. And in the 20s, people like this, Horace Livright, a young Jewish publisher, he joined people like, this is his staff, Bennett Cerf, founder of you know, Random House, Richard Simon, Max Schuster, Horace Livright, challenges like these men do the old Anglo-Saxon guard in publishing. He takes chances on writers like Hemingway and Faulkner and Hart Crane that nobody took chances on. He spends hugely on advertising. He published books in Hollywood style, with Hollywood style fanfare. Um, it's, it's a practice the old guard considered Little Brown in those places, considered vulgar. And this is him in 1923 at his office on West 48th Street, right in the middle of the Speakeasy District. And there are probably, on that day as any other day, more bootleggers in the building than there were authors. And Libright would boast at his legendary parties that you know, he was the king as well of Broadway because he ran a Broadway office. He produced a play called Dracula and things like that. But he's not a crazy man. He's a publisher with principle. More than any other publisher in New York City, he fought censorship and book censorship. And with Jimmy Walker as his lawyer, and up in the state Senate, Walker won the day against book censorship with one single remark. No woman has ever been ruined by a book. Okay. And so the theater world that he loved is over here on Times Square. Now, this is Times Square in 1904 when it was Long Acre, just after it was changed from, Times, from Long Acre Square to Times Square. This is it in 1907 when they dropped the first electric bulb from the building, creating, of course, a New York, you know, New Year's tradition. And this is Times Square at night. Now, there was a great white way before the 20s, but the, now it's more spectacular. It's illuminated with technicolor lights. And the advertising lights move and they whirl. You get bottles of beer on the firmament, rivers of peanuts, you know, dropping from the clouds. And a French visitor called it a conspiracy of commerce against the night. And, uh, and there it is, Broadway. And, and see, what happens in Broadway is the movie theaters move the legitimate theaters in the 20s off to the side streets. Because you can run these shows three, four times a day and pack theaters with as many as 5,000 people. Broad this legitimate theater can't compete with that. And what they do here is, this is the opening of the most spectacular of them, the Roxy Theater in 1927. And, you know, <laughs> this is, it's, it's ornate. It's the largest theater, as one critic said, since the fall of Rome. And uh, it's five stories high. It seats 6,000 6, people. A New Yorker cartoon said a little kid is standing in this rotunda, and he looks up at his mom, and he says, Mama, does God live here? And uh, critics poked fun at it. They said it was over the top. But Roxy, Roxy didn't care. He's after the common crowd. For a buck fifty, a queen steam fitter and his wife could take any seat in the house, none are reserved. That was revolutionary. And enjoy a four-hour show, treated like rajahs, actually, by these well-drilled Roxy ushers. Now, Roxy himself is, comes from Forest City, Pennsylvania, where he runs a small theater in the back of his, his father-in-law's saloon. It's a one-man operation. He sold the tickets, operated the projector, picked the music, and borrowed chairs from a local undertaker. <laughs> when there was a big wake, he had to close the theater. And uh, during a showing of the Pasadena Rose Festival, uh, he tied sponges dipped in um, rose water, tied them to two electric fans. He called it smell vision And... Uh, he came to New York to boost the audiences in these big theaters because you couldn't get enough people. There weren't enough good films before 27 when sound was invented to fill these theaters every night. So he had a thing called the prologue. 
And at the Capitol Theater, where he operated the prologue with a 100-piece symphony orchestra, classical ballet, vaudeville acts with clog dancers and elephants. It was amazing. And Marcus Lowe, the movie mogul, summed it up. He said, we sell tickets to theaters, not movies. Okay? And Roxy is, begins broadcasting his prologues on radio, and then he switches over. There's David Sarnoff on the left to David Sarnoff's NBC network. He's standing next to Marconi who was his mentor. And Sarnoff started out in the industry with Marconi and was instrumental in transforming its, the Marconi Company's spinoff, RCA, into a telecommunications giant. And in the mid-20s, he moves to Midtown, too, and bucks up with Bill Paley, who founds in 1928, one year after he founds NBC, Paley found CBS with money from his cigar family's fortune. And it's Paley who turns radio permanently and firmly to advertising. And finally, Paley, who was a regular visitor at the Cotton Club, here's Duke Ellington, and Washington, D.C.'s Duke Ellington, and he puts his jazz orchestra on the radio right direct from Harlem's Cotton Club. And before this, Ellington is playing downtown at a CD dive called the Club Kentucky. And as Ellington said, the place closes when the cash register stops, and everyone in the band is a juice hound. Uh, meaning, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of drugs then, but, you know, heavy drinking. Years later, Ellington went on the wagon, and he said, I retired the undefeated, I quote him, undefeated champ. I drank more booze than anyone else. But, of course, in 27, the Cotton Club, it, by the way, it's owned by Oni Madden, and uh, it found itself without a band for the Christmas season. So Ellington's agent, Irving Miles, got, gets him an audition, and Madden, through a mobster intermediary, gets him out of a contract. He had signed a contract the day before the audition to do a traveling show, and it's going to Philadelphia. So they call this guy Boo Boo Huff, a big Philadelphia mobster, and he sent a gunman out to talk to Clarence Robinson, who's head of the troop, and he said to Robinson, be big or be dead. Well, Robinson was big. And uh, that night, Ellington and his band left Philadelphia for New York and for Harlem and for history. And in that same year, he had done Creole Love Song, Black and Tan Fantasies, and it's these, it's these recordings, along with that radio exposure, that makes him not a cotton club phenomena, but a national phenomena. And his hot jazz captures the country. Ellington didn't like to call it jazz. He said, I don't write jazz, I write Negro folk music. And in conclusion here, I mean, this is the band itself. Now, they appeared like that in 1929 at a Florence Ziegfeld show called show, Showgirl. And Ziegfeld is the only producer in Broadway with guts enough and moral courage enough to f put black performers on the same stage with white chorus girls. Um, he started out, of course, in the business in Chicago as the manager of an Austrian strongman. And uh, he had supposedly fought a lion in his cage, but Siegfried had, had drugged the lion into a stupor. Uh, Another of Siegfried's acts was the Dancing Ducks of Denmark, and uh, the Society for the Prevention of Animals closed that sucker down when it was discovered that the metal stage on which the ducks were dancing was heated by gas jets. So uh, he gets his start, of course, uh, Siegfeld does, with the, uh, with the Follies, uh, which are so-called to glorify the American girl. But then in 27, he surprises everybody. This master of light entertainment produces Showboat a show that revolutionizes the state. It's set, of course, as you know, on a Mississippi riverboat. It deals sensitively with the explosive issue of miscegenation. 
It has a mixed black and white cast. It's got songs that rise right out of the plot and dialogue. It's staged by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein II, and it revolutionizes musical theater. Brooks Atkinson, the Times critic, called it, at the time, the best musical ever written. And, for a t and, and also, you get Jules Bledsoe. They tried to get Paul Robeson, but, but he couldn't commit to, to do Old Man River, that soulful rendition of Old Man River. And that year, Ziegfeld had six, count them, six Broadway shows that were big hits. Uh, that, that's a feat that's never been equaled. And in the same year, he opens his theater, and uh, the Ziegfeld Theater, which has been torn down, that was on 6th and 54th. It's designed by Joseph Urban, who, built, who designed the Oni Madden's Cotton Club. Oni Madden keeps popping back in the story. Arguably the finest theater in New York. No boxes for the grandees. It was exactly what it's supposed to be, a theater for music, a theater for music. Now, here in conclusion, I'd say this. You know, I think if, I think it was Ziegfeld, not F. Scott Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald spent very little time in New York City in the 20s. He's mostly out of the city. I think it's Ziegfeld who embodies Jazz Age New York. It's excesses, it's energy, it's dissipation, it's daring, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's a fantastic run of successes. And he's a fascinating, uh, not altogether appealing, but fascinating character, a man of a thousand, thousand contradictions. He hired more comedians than anyone in the business, yet nobody could get him to laugh, not even to smile. He pampered his performers, gave them bags of gold and big luxury cars, but none of them were ever welcomed in his home, not even at parties. He had this tremendous magnetic personality, yet his favorite means of communication was a telegram. He'd send 110, 120 a day off of the staffers who were directly across the hall. As one of his agents said, if Ziegfeld dies, sell Western Union short. <laughs> You know, he's a devoted father, a devoted husband, and, you know, married the actress Billy Burke. His daughter Patty was a beautiful young girl, and yet he's a serial philanderer, and uh, he couldn't keep his hands off his chorus girls. He and Billy entertained like ancient Romans up in their Hudson River estate called Berkeley Crest. They had a menagerie of animals, including pet baby elephant for Patty, two twin bears called Tunny and Dempsey. Uh, and Billy says in her autobiography, she says, the world was a place in the 20s created for fun, but that ain't true. Billy was, and she writes this in a memoir, but Billy was a workaholic, and so was her husband. He handpicked every chorus girl in his follies. It was exacting in the extreme, even with his own daughter. A friend complimented Patty on her, uh, Ziegfeld on, complimented Ziegfeld on Patty's beauty, and he said, yeah, inch too large around the hips. <laughs> who thinks say your daughter? He's a gambler. He's gambling at the Baccarat tables, losing $50,000 a night on some nights, and he gambles on you know, some plays that just never make it. He made it. But he gambles most of all in the stock market. When it crashes, he goes down with it. And uh, once master of his own world, he dies in 1936, again, uh, with a quarter million dollars of unpaid bills. And I think the forces that brought down Ziegfeld were those that really brought down Jazz Age New York. Um, it brought Jazz Age New York to its spectacular death, as Fitzgerald called it in 1929. But although Ziegfeld, how do I put this? I think he contributes tremendously to the unrestrained extravagance of that age, uh, this complete disregard of inhibitions. But the 20s, I disagree with Fitzgerald. The 20s weren't this bleary-eyed spree that he talks about in this sullen self-autopsy he writes called Crack Up. I don't think any 
decade in the life of the city was more alive or enduringly creative. And I think in this age, New York creates the quintessential 20th century city, this midtown with its gleaming spires and as its epicenter. And Carl Sandburg, although Chicagoan, summed it up. He said, by night, the skyscraper looms in the smoke and the stars and has a soul. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Yeah, we have time for one question. Sorry, I went over a little bit. I'll do better in my second PowerPoint. Thursday. <laughs> yes, sir. My, I'm Jim Pucinich. I'm a docent here. My question is, why did Sarnoff and Paley succeed when Flo Ziegfeld and French went under? What, what approach did they have a business? Well, that made it wasn't the approach to business. It was what was happening in the entertainment world. Ziegfeld's touch, the famous Ziegfeld touch, just simply became outmoded. These uh, follies, extravaganzas grew very stale. Um, and the new age is an age of images. And uh, they're starting to experiment with television, and they move right. See, they're nonstop. I mean, they are sharks in the water. And, and they, Sarnoff invents the skeleton of the radio industry, most of its technology. And he and Paley then combined to turn radio into a... A median where it used to be transmissions from ship to shore, now it's from station to your home, okay? And now we've got to fill it with entertainment. And once we fill it with entertainment, then we move to something else. And Sarnoff called it radio with images, and that's television. And these two guys are still fighting into their 80s for supremacy at CBS and NBC. When people like Ziegfeld and Roxy with their old-fashioned types of entertainment are simply pushed aside by talking pictures, radio, television. I think that's more than anything else. They're all gamblers, but um, they gambled, these two guys, Paley and Sarnoff, gambled on, on the right technology. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot.